0: all right <clears throat> welcome back to another episode of SU doc talk uh, I think today I, I, I want to talk about medical education what <clears throat> kind of my experience has been I, what what my opinions are about medical education in the United States at least where is where I train and practice um, I think there's a lot of flaws it's probably what I'm going to focus on with medical education I want, I want you to keep in mind as I talk about this that I am not an expert in medical education I don't work in medical education so I actually might be kind of ignorant about several things so if you are someone that uh, doesn't you know, after listening to this and you think I need some correction about my, my views about uh, medical education in the United States, please let me know. Uh, I would love to hear more, but let's jump into this topic. Uh, just to be clear, when I say I don't work in med- medical education, I mean, I don't work in like that administrative side. I work in medical education, meaning I work at a major American academic hospital, and I work with med students, residents, fellows, um, uh, you know, almost every day. So I, I work, I educate, but I don't, you know, just, just to be clear, that, that distinction. All right. So if you're not familiar, I just want to go through what medical education is in the United States. Right. So it it compared to a lot of Europe. So here in the United States, you have to go. You, you get an undergraduate degree first and it can be in anything. Um, right. You can get a degree in music. I, I got an undergrad degree in chemistry, not because I thought it was good for medicine. But that's but just because I liked chemistry. But you can you can do whatever you can be in dance. Whatever, you know, whatever it is, whatever you'd like. And by the way, if you're listening to this, considering going to med school in the United States, I think it's a good idea to get a degree in something that is not science based because it shows that you're, you're, you know, more kind of a well-rounded person. Um, not that that's necessarily true. Anyway, I digress that. Anyway, so you have to get an undergrad, undergraduate degree, a bachelor's degree at a college or university, which is generally four years. And it can be in anything. However, there are prerequisites that you must take to get into medical school. Some of my information might be outdated because some of the prerequisites might change because it's been some time since I tried to apply to med school. So, uh, but usually you need to like take some classes in chemistry and biology, physics. There are prerequisites to even be accepted into medical school. So whether you get a degree in dance, you need, to get, you need to take those courses, and you generally need to do well in them to be competitive. And then you need to take this uh, exam called the MCAT, which has also changed since I took it last. It's a very difficult exam. It takes like eight hours <laughs> to take. I, stud- I took it twice. I, the first time I took it, I did okay. The second time I took it, I did better. Um, still not like brilliant scores, but that's fine. Um, that's another kind of, I feel, I feel like that's a bad uh, uh, misperception people have about medical education, that top scores, being really good on taking tests makes you a good doctor. It absolutely does not translate. It can, it does not translate. Um, anyway, so you generally take this MCAT and then you've got to do well, all that stuff. I've, I've mentioned on a previous podcast about, you know, getting into med school and all that. And then, um, and then you go to medical school, which is four years. And then from medical school, you do a residency and residency can range from, it can be as little as three years for like internal medicine, or I think I believe emergency medicine or pediatrics, or it can be like seven or eight years if you do like neurosurgery surgery or cardiothoracic surgery. And then a fellowship is after residency and a fellowship is optional. Um, Someone can do residency and then they have to take board exams and then they get board certified in their specialty and then they can practice. You can go do a fellowship on top of that. It gives you extra specialization. You can get boarded in that as well. And then you can go do that, go work in a specialty or a subspecialty. That's what I did. I did a fellowship. I did a residency in anesthesiology and then I did a fellowship in critical care. And then I'm double boarded and I do both of those things. So that's what it is in the United States and a lot of parts of Europe. Uh, you go, rather that you graduate from high school and then you go right into medical school. You don't get an undergraduate degree. You go into medical school and then you go into residency from there. Medical school is longer. I think it's like six years. Again, I'm a little ignorant on the different countries, how they do it differently. But generally, I think it's about six years, depending on the country, uh, medical school. And then you go into residency and then you come practicing. So that it's a different model of doing it. I think there's weaknesses and strengths of doing these both uh, in different ways. I think in the United States, I think the, the strength that we have is you have exposure to other things to, to maybe hop off, hop, off, um hop off the bus. Like, you know what? I don't want to do medicine. I got exposed to these, these other things there's other humanities arts film, whatever. And I don't want to do this. It's not for me because I don't know about you, <clears throat> but when I was 19 or 20, I was really dumb. Um, which isn't to say you're dumb when you're that age, but, uh, what I mean by that is your, your, your foresight and your decision-making about your life and planning for your life. It can be, it can be highly influenced and what you think is, you know, the most amazing thing in the world. And you think that's you're destined for, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, you were, you've, you're completely wrong. <clears throat> so to go from, to be a high school student and decide you're going to devote your life to a career in medicine and then jump right into medical school at that age, I think might, some people might have a lot of problem with that. And I've talked to people that, you know, have trained there and they, uh, I've heard that opinion as well. Now, I don't know if that's a widespread opinion. Um, again, I'm kind of a little ignorant of, of how it's done totally over there. But, but the, you know, the, the flip side of it is that you get done with your medical education sooner. Um, you don't, you're not quote, wasting time. If you call if you want to call that wasting time, um, doing other things, if you know you're destined to be a neurosurgeon or something, then that is obviously the right path for you. Um, and you know, congratulations, but, uh, so anyway, that's just kind of the difference between how we do it here and and a lot of parts of Europe. Obviously it's done differently in other parts of the world. And I don't know how it's done in every part of the world. That's, I I, I don't, that's the extent of my knowledge. All right. And then when you're in medical school in the United States, medical school is four years. The first two years is just lectures and textbooks, mostly. Maybe you do a little research right in the summer or something like that. And then the second two years are clinical rotations, where you're getting exposed hands-on experience to different specialties. Okay, so there's these four years. Now the first two years are in the United States are much like uh, undergrad. You are, as I said, you're just doing lectures and textbooks and, and whatever. And medical schools you know, time and time again, they try to come up with like new and exciting curriculum, new ways to teach, and that's fine. I'm not critical of that. Like, you know, problem problem based learning and learning in groups and getting rid of lectures and doing, and that's fine. I, I you know, again, I'm not a educator. I don't understand the science of education, so I, I'm all for switching stuff up like that and how to learn because I think people can learn in many, many different ways. Uh, but my point is, the first two years of medical school are a lot like undergraduate, where you're just you're just learning new stuff and you're just trying to put that in your brain. And, and testing is a lot of regurgitation. It's not all regurgitation. It's a lot of it is also critical thinking, but the, that's what those first two years are, are like. And I think it's necessary. You have to have a, a fundamental foundation of medical knowledge before you start on your you know journey of medicine. You have to understand, you know, context. And I, I do think that's very important. So that's what the first two years. And then, as I said, the next two years, the third and fourth year are clinical rotations. So there are required clinical rotations that you have to do. And then there's elective clinical rotations. And what I mean by clinical rotations is you are actually in the hospital. You're no longer like just in the medical school, you are going into the hospital, you're going into clinics, you're going to the operating room, you're going into procedures and you're hanging out with people, meaning, you know, you're hanging out with very experienced doctors, you're hanging out with residents, you're hanging out with fellows, um, and you're getting hands on training and you rotate from one specialty to the next. Now, it can be a very frustrating experience as a medical student doing this because you are so like one month you're doing family medicine where you're, uh, you know, in an outpatient clinic and you're seeing a bunch of patients and you're working with an attending there. By the way, an attending means a, a independently practicing physician. That's what attending means in the United States. Um, so you're so you can be on family medicine and then the next month you're doing plastic surgery and you're in the operating room with a completely new you know, set of people doing an unbelievably different uh, field of medicine. I mean, it can't be night and day, right? The difference between family medicine clinic and something like plastic surgery. And this is what your journey through, you know, the third and fourth year of medical school is. You're rotating for one thing to the next. You are constantly a novice. Uh, um, and you're constantly starting from ground zero over and over again every month or every, every every six weeks, whatever, some rotations are longer. You know, you're doing OB and then you're switching to anesthesiology. Um, and then you're switching to you know i don't know heme onc maybe you did a you're doing an elective in that um and you're getting exposure to these different types of medicines and you're learning as much as possible and then you're getting tested throughout all this and you're taking these board exams which which have to do with your success as a resident anyway so you're 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 hopping and skipping back and forth back and forth to all these different things constantly resetting it and it can be very it's a very it can be a very frustrating experience now here's one of the main flaws in in this process. So let me back it up. What makes a good doctor? Okay. Why? What makes a good? What's the difference between a good doctor and a bad doctor? It's not um, your ability to take tests. It is not your ability to take exams. That, that is just absolutely not what makes a good doctor. Uh, so that's not even what makes a smart doctor. In my opinion, or smart. What is like? I know I'm getting into a more meta conversation here, but you know, what is intelligence? What makes someone you know, quote unquote, smart? Is it the ability to take a test? So that's a certain type of smartness and intelligence. I would say it's the type of intelligence that society rewards, you know, with with financial and status and all that. With you know, it's 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 a type of intelligence that's easily rewarded by our society. But is that is that what intelligence is? The be able, ability to game an exam? maybe game and exam is the wrong answer is the wrong way to to word it but why is someone arrived to the point where they're able to do really well on an exam well okay they might have some baseline intelligence but they they've been their mind has been developed in such a way that they're able to to uh, interface with that exam in a really in a very positive way and understand what the test takers are trying to ask them and trying to get to the right answer because that's what test taking is is you're, you're getting to a, you're understanding what the test takers are doing, right? You can study for an exam and you can do well on that exam. Here's my point. So when you go through these rotations, you're getting evaluated. uh, So by people in these rotations in your third and fourth year of medical school, you're getting evaluated based on just extremely subjective uh, measures. Uh, like oh okay this medical student they were not they were not enthusiastic so and that'll affect your grade as a med student okay they weren't enthusiastic because they didn't act like a cheerleader when they showed up every day um, you know or they had a bad attitude which is a highly subjective thing right that's a highly cultural thing oh they you know they had a bad attitude like did they really have a bad attitude or are they from a different culture than you and maybe their their bad attitude is is uh you you just don't understand. How someone expresses attitude from the culture that you know that that person comes from, my point is it's highly subjective, so you get you get evaluated by residents and fellows and attendings with these little tiny let these micro interactions throughout that month that you're on a clinical rotation, getting a tiny window into someone how does someone's performing what is that performance even it's performance is a good word it's performative you're not really someone can easily game this system uh to get good grades to get good evaluations and they can graduate and be an absolute disaster of a physician. That's kind of my point that I'm getting at. And now at the same time that you're doing these clinical rotations, you're paying an American medical school a lot of money, right? So my student loans, I took out like $350,000 just for med- medical school. So you're doing your third and fourth year of medical school. You're paying tuition and these people that are teaching you are not getting paid to teach you. Uh, and the facilities that you're using, your tuition have not have nothing to do with a hospital existing or that clinic existing or patients coming in. So where exactly is your tuition going? <laughs> Why are you paying, uh, you know, for this moment, uh, for this third and fourth year of medical school where literally the infrastructure and the people that are uh, teaching your education, they literally, your tuition is not going towards any of that, for, basically for two years straight, your third and fourth year of medical school. Very little of your tuition is going towards your education, so I, I I don't know how to square that. Now I don't. Again, I'm not. I'm not in administration. I'm not in a medical school administration, so I don't. Maybe I'm just not seeing all of that. Uh, You know, maybe I'm just ignorant of things of where, you know, tuition money actually goes. But I remember being a third and fourth year medical student. I'm like, why am I paying tuition? To show up to a bunch to this this six weeks of surgical rotation to a bunch of unenthused residents that are trainees themselves and an attending that I barely see or who I see in the operating room who just who just yells at me because I'm not cutting the knot the right way because I have no idea what I'm doing because I'm a you know idiot med, med student why am I paying tuition for this and and then I'm getting evaluated based on extremely subjective criteria and these evaluations affect my future as a physician and the residency that I that I'm ultimately going to get into so you see what I'm... It's a little like what it, it's it's like informal <clears throat> you're paying you're basically paying a bunch of tuition for very informal training, highly subjective, highly scattered a shotgun approach to education and this is what third and fourth year medical school is like in the United States, and then furthermore, your fourth year of medical school about half of that is used to interview for residency, so you are booking trips your uh you know residency is highly competitive, and the more and some residencies are even more competitive than other residencies, right? If you want to get into like radiation oncology or dermatology or neurosurgery, that's extremely competitive. So you are booking a ton of interviews at a ton of places you, uh, cuz you're trying to maximize your chances of getting into just a single residency. So sometimes, you know, some some medical students are going on 30, 40 interviews, literally flying. Well, maybe pre pre-pandemic. Now you know, interviews are done remotely, but maybe they're loosening up now. I'm not really sure. But you're fl- you're going on all these interviews you're not in school doing that. You're also, you have to pay for all those things yourself. I had to take out an extra private loan just to pay. Like I took out an extra 20 grand on top of my medical school tuition, just to go on interviews to get into anesthesia residency. Um, and then you're not getting educated during that. And that's, and that, I mean, seriously, a medical student can take six months, four or five, six months of their fourth year of medical school going on interviews. That's not education. That, I, I, I don't know what that is. And again, why am I paying? Why is someone paying? I know I'm fa- sounding whining at this point. I'm not like bitter about it. I'm very grateful for you know to my medical school and uh, all that. So I hope I'm not coming off too bitter. I'm, I'm honestly not bitter. I'm just kind of asking these questions because it's like, why is this the system that we have? Why do we spend almost nearly half of our fourth year of medical school interviewing for, for residency and we're not actually getting an education and we're uh, paying tuition for that, uh, a lot of tuition for that? Um, And then for your medical school, a few years later, to then ask for donations to the school—it's like I'm not, I'm not doing that. Why did I pay you so much tuition to begin with? Okay, I guess I'm a little bitter. No, no, I'm joking. Okay, so you know, med school—that's kind of, you know, uh, an experience that someone can have through med school. It's kind of a shotgun approach where you, your education is really kind of all over the place, and it's really it's highly subjective to your experience, highly subjective to the med school you go to. Uh, And then you go, you know, you go to intern. You go to residency, and everybody does the, an intern year, right? That's what an intern means. It means you've graduated from medical school. You have, a, you, have you technically have a medical degree, but you're a first year, uh, you know, and you're still a trainee. And you very much do not know how to be a doctor when you start out as an intern. Very much so. I'll just like medical. When you're in medical school, you're you're barely you're barely even understanding what medicine even is. Um, obviously, you have a good grasp, you know, more than the average person, but. It's when you're an intern, from my personal experience, that is the biggest growth. Some of the biggest growth you have in your career is when you're an intern. That one year, your growth is exponential. You, that is where you actually learn how to be a doctor. It is not in medical school. You do not. I just want to make that very clear. You do not know how to be a doctor. You do not learn how to be a doctor in medical school. You learn the science of of the medicine. You learn the, you know, you learn the pharmacology and the physiology. You learn all of those things, and then you get exposed to different medical fields. To decide what you want to go into, it is an intern year. That's where you decide to be a physician, and this kind of harkens back to like it's not your test scores that dictate how well you're going to be as an intern. It's honestly, it's it's a it's your leadership skills. It's how you're able to talk with patients. It's how you're able to uh, act interprofessionally with nurses with other staff. Um, how are you how are you able to deliver timely and good patient care in a collaborative effort? That is what being a physician is. And you don't learn those skills just by going through medical school, you don't. Medical schools need to be highly selective with who they pick to go into medicine for people that have those attributes, in my opinion. This is why I, you will hear about it every now and then, people that have brilliant, brilliant MCAT scores or grades or whatever, and they don't get into a single medical school. Now, it's not a judgment about that person. Obviously, it's someone who's very smart, who is very good at test taking, But clearly a person like that, uh, if you had very good scores, you would get invited to a lot of medical school interviews, presumably. And, and you probably, that person probably does not interview well. And there's a reason that medical schools did not, chose to not, you know, matriculate that person into medical school. And it's probably because they are not very good with, you know, for lack of better words, they're, they're not very good at, um, you know, uh, personal skill, interpersonal skills, speaking with people, leading a team. They don't maybe naturally, I don't know if that's a natural talent. I don't know if there's talent. Obviously it's a talent that could be developed, but perhaps they don't have those skills and it's maybe it comes through in their interviews and they don't get accepted to a, a single medical school. You hear about this, um, all the time. That is what, in my opinion, that is what makes a good physician. Okay. And I want to take a little tangent here. I want to talk about some data that has to do with, uh um, People that are admitted to medical school based on their GPA, which is uh, in the United States, that's how you someone with a high GPA has you know good grades. A 4.0 is a perfect GPA um, and MCAT scores. This is data from the Association of American Medical Colleges, the um, AAMC, based on race. All right. So people make this argument. They'll be like, oh, you know, black or Native American or Asian people, they well, compared to white people, they're accepted with worse scores to medical school, worse, like lower scores than white people. And if you look at the AAMC data, it's tr- that is true. Okay, so I'm reading off some of the data right here. So you have so Amer uh, so looking at GPAs, you have American, you have uh, uh, Native Americans. A mean GPA. Honestly, they should they should report the median GPA because the mean is skewed by extremes. Anyway, uh, Native American mean GPA is three point three. This is this is people that are accepted matriculants to U.S. medical schools. Um. So sorry. So Native American is three point three. Asian 3.6, black or African American is 3.35, Hispanic is 3.47, uh, white is 3.6. Okay. MCAT scores. So the mean MCAT score for Native American 3.49, Asian 3.79, black or African American 3.55, Hispanic 3.64, white 3.78. So from that data from AMC, which by the way, this is a the means and standard deviations are calculated on 62,000 applicants. And this is a, hang on, this is from last year. Uh, 20, this is 2021 and 2022. So this is recent data that I'm, that I'm um, reporting back to you. So people are like, oh, you know, it's affirmative action, et cetera, whatever. Here's my point. So, that, so it's true, you know, if you look at that ob- uh, objective data, it would appear that there's a lower standard for, uh, non-white people getting accepted to medical school. This is my point. GPA and scores do not make good doctors. Okay. All of those scores I just told you are perfectly acceptable scores of people that are are perfectly intelligent to be doctors. We're not lowering the standard of care. People need to be physicians need to be well-rounded individuals that have diverse experiences. So to to make the argument that you're accepting people that it's that you're targeting it and you have race selective policies policies and they may be race selective I'm not denying that they're not I I, I believe medical schools clearly um, are race selective with who they uh, admit to medical school meaning they're trying to favor non-white people but what what do we mean by favor non-white people mostly white people are still getting matriculated it's mostly <laughs> white people but I but I believe medical schools do make an effort to uh, um, have non-white people be accepted over some white people. That is my speculation. I don't have proof of that. But I believe that is what's happening. And I support this practice. I absolutely support this practice. Medicine needs more diverse backgrounds, not just diversity of skin, okay? I mean, I, I think we should have diversity of skin as well, of course, but we need people of different backgrounds, different cultures, different life experiences that bring that richness to the field of medicine and bring that, that to the profession. Uh, so just my whole point with this tangent here, is scores do not translate into being a good doctor, and by accepting students with with less scores, uh, you know, not as high scores, is not lowering our standard of care to be, to as like an affirmative action thing, and that we're lowering the quality of physicians that, that come into medicine. I would much rather have a doctor with diverse experiences than a doctor that got perfect perfect scores. Assuming they're you know, com- you know obviously you need to be competent, you can't lower the standard of competency as well. Anyway, what was my point? So that was just a tangent. My point is uh I even I forgot where I'm going with all this. It I started out saying it's your intern year where you learn to be a doctor. It is not your M, the MCAT that you took. It is not medical school where you learn to be a doctor. It is intern year and the growth is phenomenal. Um okay. So, bagging up, you know, I'm I'm talking about medical education here. <clears throat> so, you're getting your actual medical education while you're an intern and while you're a resident. So, residency happens after your intern year. You are now going into the re- whatever residency you've chosen to go into. With it. For me, it was anesthesiology. <clears throat> For someone else, it can be dermatology. Whatever it is, that is where you are learning your craft. Finally, during residency, you are not you are not jumping from one random rotation to another. You are actually you may be doing different rotations, but you are. It's all within the same field, and that is actually where you are learning and you are training <clears throat> to finally be a doctor in what you are doing. And and now you are getting paid a salary, um, which is a livable salary. It's a perfectly fine salary. Um, there's kind of this argument that residents need to be paid more. I think they do need to pay more. I think it's extremely cheap labor for a hospital. They're also getting like $100,000 per resident from the government, um, right? So, I, you know, for to pay for uh, their employment package and their salary and stuff like that. I do think residents need to be paid more. I do. However, on that point, I'm not a fan of uh, people in medicine and physicians and residents making the point that like, you know oh that they're so oppressed that they're you know they they need a better wage and stuff like that when and they make a false equivalency with other people that have the same salary like a resident can make any in the united states from like 50 to i don't know seventy thousand dollars a year <clears throat> a resident making like fifty thousand fifty five thousand dollars a year is not the same as someone else who's not a merit resident making fifty five thousand dollars a year the income potential for that resident is tremendous right they're going to make more money when they become an attending so it's, it's just, I, I, I'm not a fan of this false equivalency, like, oh, woe is me with this salary. it's like, you, you're not in the same position, you're right? You're in an absolute privileged pos, um, position compared to people that are making the salary for the rest of their lives, right? Anyway, so it's a perfectly livable salary. But your, your main education, here's my point. <clears throat> your main education is while you're a resident. It's not where you're, while you're a medical student paying tremendous amounts of tuition, So it's almost like there's this system that's set up like medical schools. know everybody knows this. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly revelatory here, but it's like, well, so why is tuition so high? I don't know. Right. There's, I think there's many factors why tuition is so high in the United States. Um, You know, it's like free elsewhere. And obviously doesn't cost that much. There's not that much overhead for tuition to be that high. It's obviously a business and it's a profit seeking model clearly, but it's like, there's almost like this, uh, it's almost like this punishment up front. Like, Hey, we know you have great income potential. So we're going to charge you this much to come to medical school. It's like a, I mean, it's like a fee, you know, it's like a guild fee. It's like a fee to, if you're going to be in this guild, you got to pay this fee. Honestly, that's what it feels like to me. Anyway, so, so my point with all of this is, so this process in the United States of creating doctors, it does, it creates good doctors, right? It also creates bad doctors. Um, I think incompetent people can hide very well in this system, but I, eventually it, they, you know, stuff can catch up to people. I, this process, it's messy, but overall, I, I know I'm contradicting myself a little bit. It does produce good doctors. It's like 99% of the time, someone who can endure this process is you, is oftentimes an upstanding person. They, you know, they're, they're self-disciplined, they've sacrificed, they're intelligent, they have resiliency and, and they oftentimes will make a good physician that you can put your trust. So you, you know, you have someone through this process and then you have someone like me an anesthesiologists who you show up to one day, you've never met. I talk to you for 10 minutes, five minutes before you go back to surgery. And there's just this inherent trust. Like this person will take care of me. <clears throat> and, and we should have that trust. I'm not saying we should not have that trust, but there's this whole educ this kind of flawed educational process that is built up to this point where now you have this professional that's taking you back where, their experience and their training has come, come. it's been haphazard maybe is is the wrong word to use. I think shotgun approach to education is really what American medical education is. I think it varies widely across the board. And it can be better. I think it can definitely be better. Now, I'm not an expert in education at all. My wife is. Um, But uh, things to improve this, I don't think medical school needs to be four years. I think it should be three years. We don't need that fourth year of medical school. I think people could enter their residencies much sooner that they know they want to go into, or maybe even here's a, here's a radical idea. If say someone wants to be a surgeon, like an orthopedic surgeon, maybe don't even go to medical school, have it as a, as a, you go into orthopedic school day one, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon and you go into orthopedic school and you train to be an orthopedic surgeon right away because you, you learn all these things and, and uh, often, and, and you get so here's a story. Okay. I love this story to prove my point here. So I had a patient who, uh, uh, so I work in the cardiac ICU, right. And I had a patient who, uh, had a car- some sort of, had a cardiac surgery, something on their aorta. And it looked like maybe they're having a heart attack afterwards. Like they're, I don't know, they're having chest pain. I forget the, the details, but there were signs of it. And, uh, so we got an EKG and the EKG, uh, maybe they're having, you know, a heart attack ischemia or, you know, maybe one of their coronary grafts is down. So I called the cardiac surgeon, a guy I, I really like and I call cardiology and we all, we're all sitting around the bedside to decide. and the patient's fine. You know, we're not, this isn't an emergency situation. She's talking, she's fine. And, uh, we get another EKG and it prints off and the cardiologist, right. who's an expert in the heart reads the EKG and he's like, well, what do you think? And he passes it to the cardiothoracic surgeon. <laughs> the cardiothoracic surgeon was like, just looked at it and he's like, I don't know what this is. I, I do not understand this. I am a plumber. <laughs> and he just passed the EKG back. <laughs> it was so funny. Everybody laughed. I loved his honest transparency. He's like, and, and the point was, he's like, I am a surgeon. I do not know m- much about medicine anymore because I am a cardiothoracic surgeon, which is a field I highly respect. And I work with cardiothoracic surgeons all the time. I don't say this to make fun of cardiothoracic surgeons, um, although I sometimes do in good fun. But that's the point. Maybe a cardiothoracic surgeon should be, have like one year of medicine, medical school, and then go right into residency. Um, so we're not wasting time, may, wasting tuition dollars to do this. I don't know; it's an idea. I'm not like married to that idea. I haven't thought about this. Please keep in mind, I am not an expert in education. You might be yelling at me, like these are all these are stupid ideas, and maybe they are. These are just some thoughts. they are just random thoughts on this, you know, random podcast that you're listening to. So don't take take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. This is kind of random ramblings that I'm saying. At any rate, I I think, um, you know, as a physician goes through intern and residency, they grow tremendously. And that's when they really become physicians. Um, And what I mean become physicians is being able to practice independently and to be the person, the final line that's making decisions what's safe and what's, you know, what's the best thing for patients in in all fields. So it's really during that crucial time of intern year and residency that someone is learning. And then once someone is in attending, which is the word we use for someone who practices independently, there's still a lot of learning to be to be done. Um, I think the whole I think you know standing back and think about all this the, the main point is uh, being a physician is a lifelong pursuit of knowledge and that's why it's you know you're, you you must keep up to date on current literature and and best practices and if you work academically like I do, you are pursuing many different projects you are writing in journals um you you know getting published and pursuing you know uh a better knowledge and pursuing in a in a sense scientific excellence um you know never being satisfied with your knowledge base never knowing never thinking that you you you're at the top of your game because you never are there's always medicine is so complex now there's so many fields you can never know everything, and you must keep learning. So, learning is a lifelong process. I think what's what, what you know what's my whole point with just this ep- this week's episode is is a it is a f- the, the the American process that creates doctors is very flawed. I think it mostly works, I guess, um, meaning it creates qualified physicians, but it does it in kind of a roundabout, weird way. And there's probably improvements we can make on the, along the way. Uh, also without burdening um physicians with a lot of debt because that debt is also used and is, as an excuse to keep salaries high you know politically um i do think physicians should be well compensated for their time and their skills i'm obviously biased saying that um, i think many other uh people that are non-sufficient should, should also be well compensated and they are not um but uh anyway the the debt you know being in three hundred and fifty thousand dollars of debt or whatever hundred thousand Is often used as an excuse, like in a rhetorical political way of being like, "Well, that's why, that's why healthcare costs are so high." Um, So that's highly debatable. That's why healthcare costs are high. Uh, For one thing, it's not; it's not just any one single thing. Um, I think doctors and what they charge is a big is a big problem in many ways. But that's a topic for another time. Um, Anyway, why don't we? uh, That's kind of all I have to say for this week. Let's move on to our book. All right, the book I'm going to discuss today. Uh, was released recently. It's called The End of the World is Just, Beca- the, just the Beginning by Peter Zaihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N. <clears throat> um, and it was, uh, let me just bring this up here. It was uh, published in June of 2022. It's about 500 pages. I did a brief little TikTok review on this book and I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, so it's it's really thought-provoking, a really it's a very sobering read and it's also a little terrifying the crux of this book is that the american hegemonic global order of peaceful and protected commerce which peaceful is doesn't mean things are necessarily peaceful he uh the, uh, the author argues that it is um but but protected commerce and, and commerce itself is is globally is peaceful that that's coming to an end as america loses interest in maintaining this order If you couple that with the demographic collapse of global drop in fertility rates, we could find ourselves witnessing the utter collapse of a globalized economy over the next 10 to 20 years. For Zaihan, it's a certainty. Like, I mean, he he 100% thinks this is going to happen, that the global economic order will collapse. For me, it's not a foregone conclusion. So I'll just get a little bit more into this. So for Zaihan, geography is everything. And he makes a really compelling argument that America has the unique terrain that has given it advantages right from the beginning. There's two coasts with numerous and easily navigable ports and an enormous amount of landmass for farming, which make America uniquely able to thrive on its own. To this day, the U.S. easily implemented industrialization without it being so incredibly disruptive as it was for the rest of the world. You then pair this advantage with the conditions before and after World War II, and it's very clear why the U.S. became the de facto world power. America entered World War II late in the game and had already supplied a ton of stuff to the Allies and sucked up all of their gold. By the end, you know, when the gold standard mattered, by the end of World War II, the U.S. was uniquely positioned to set up an economic order that made the dollar, the, um, you know, the main currency of the world, backed up by the majority of gold reserves. So with that and incentivized to limit the Soviets, the U.S. set up a global order where rather than being imperialistic uh in the in the traditional uh definition of that word it actually ensured peaceful global commerce at a cost of hegemonic and almost monolithic u.s power so it really was a kind of a new advent i know a lot of people like to talk about the u.s is still imperialistic and and by or neo-imperialism and i don't debate those definitions but uh the u.s did not it did have the chance you know zaihan argues this and i I think i agree did have the chance to continue um, classical imperialism, meaning, like, actually taking over territories and direct exploitation, but it rather, it rather you know, um, like, took its grasp off that and set up a different economic world order. So this ensuing order ushered in more global growth and industrialization and mass urbanization that has ever occurred on the planet. The unprecedented peaceful commerce lifted billions from starvation and abject poverty. Now, let me qualify that. The definition of poverty is highly understated and still leaves swaths of people everywhere with terrible living conditions, which is another topic for another time. But people love to talk about how capitalism or globalization uplifted tons of people from poverty. And it may have technically done that, but the living conditions for many, many people on this planet are still absolutely terrible, and we should not be. But the definition for poverty is ridiculously it's ridiculous it's still unbelievably impoverished people anyway i mean, this isn't really a valued judgment i'm making about ideology i don't i don't care if someone is a capitalist or a socialist or a communist or a corporate fascist you know if you know me well you know i don't i don't care about ideology the fact the the facts are in my opinion and i could be uh, i'm willing to to you know uh, to have my views challenged on this, but the fact is a capitalized global order clearly took control, which resulted in mass industrialization and economies of scale, which never happened. To argue that a different ideology is superior in theory, it's really immaterial for me. For me, it just, just doesn't matter. Neoliberal capitalism is the global order, and it has resulted in relatively increased global pr- prosperity over other attempted constructs that have fizzled out, like Soviet communism. To me, those are, that, that is factual. That's factual but anyway i digress on that and so if you flash forward to the 2020s now we have two problems we have an excuse me an unraveling of peaceful commerce and you have dropping fertility rates countries like china have accelerated industrialization at neck breaking speeds it's the rate of change that is so unbelievably remarkable the thing is most countries like china simply caught up with globalized economies and did it remarkably fast, but they've done it using the same model that all other economically successful countries have have used. China currently uses hyperfinance, which is flooding everything with capital, and then suppressing their labor class to create tremendous surplus, which it then sinks into everything, including the U.S. corporatocracy and the U.S. bond market. The problem is you need young people everywhere to bolster your workforce and to keep consumerism and loan markets like humming along but this is collapsing literally everywhere as consumerism collapses all the rich boomers of the united states are taking their money with them and i do agree with on that it is for this very reason that the unprecedented growth since world war ii is very likely over it is something that we probably need to accept it's not sustainable Global commerce is dependent on American strategic and tactical overwatch. Remove the American policing and long-haul shipping collapses, as well as every global trade market, which is like all of them. If you remove mass consumption due to demographic collapse, this entire system is over. The issue I take with Zyhan here is where his entire argument rests is that American withdrawal is inevitable, but I don't think it is. All all it would take is policy change of a single American president, and half of Zyhan's arguments and, and predictions disintegrate. Um, for for Zion, it's a certainty, but it I, for me, it's not. I, I do think that globalized prosperity is on the decline, and so is the United States. Uh, and I do believe a new fractured world order is approaching, but it may not be exactly as this book predicts. <clears throat> for Zion, it's a fact that China will collapse over the next 10 to 20 years. It's a fact. He repeats it over and over and over again. Um, and then he says this will be followed by massive global famine, all while the U.S. will be able to live off of its own land while asserting only regional and not global hegemonic control. That's Zaihan's, like main point with this book, which who knows if he's correct, right? He doesn't have a crystal ball. <clears throat> Two things kind of bother me about this book. I did like this book. But first, it's zihan's ridiculous claim that rather than the U.S. asserting global dominance, the U.S. has sacrificed itself to maintain this global order as some sort of altruism. This is the same distortion and misrepresentation you see when people try to valorize philanthropic billionaires. Billionaires, like the U.S., are playing the long game of appearing to sacrifice time and money as long as they stay at the head of the table. That's not altruism. That's just rebranded tyranny and control. The other thing that was a huge oversight, Zihan he never, not once, discusses the possible stabilizing forces of automation, which I found a weird omission. Like this guy, Zaihan, he's really informed. Like, wow, this guy knows a lot. Um, but he really, he left out a crucial discussion that could upend the entire premise of the book, which is automation. That seems either deliberate or deliberate because this guy, it's not something that, it's obviously something that he's considered. Anyway, um, this book was also really heavy on cultural and geographic determinism, which are uh, concepts that definitely have their flaws. Anyway, don't get me wrong. I, I really liked this book. I think everyone should read it. I think you should read it. I think Zaihan is really smart. He's informed, and he's a really great critical thinker. There's so much more in this book that I didn't even mention. He talks about climate change, the feasibility of green energy, specific supply chains. He really goes into detail of all the different supply chains from all over the world. It's incredible. Also, the future of agriculture and mining. Anyway, I highly recommend this book. I think it's pertinent to read. All right, let's go into answering a question. Um, This is from TikTok. <clears throat> from a user uh katie Doo, too and this person's question is what are the top questions should we ask an anesthesiologist before a surgery so it's a very good question <clears throat> so you can have as little or as much of a conversation you want with your anesthesiologist it's usually someone you haven't met yet before right And anesthesi- anesthesiologist we have the unique job of we need to, you know, we should develop good rapport with someone in a very short amount of time before we, you know, take you back to the operating room and then, you know, take over your vital functions while you're asleep, while a surgeon cuts into you. So it's a very, you know, we have a kind of scenic job. So uh, uh, I think questions that you should ask are, uh, you know, if I were to ask questions to an anesthesiologist, I would say what kind of anesthesia do you plan on doing? You know, is it going to be a general anesthesia, meaning, am I going to be totally asleep, unconscious? Will I have a breathing tube? Um, Or is it going to be a moderate sedation where I am sedated, but I'm breathing on my own? How awake will I be? Um, You know, that I would want to know that right away. And then I would want to know, you know, how painful do you think the surgery is going to be? What kind of uh, pain medications do you plan on giving me? Um, You know, are you going to give me Tylenol up front? Or you know what's am I gonna have opiates uh, during it? What kind of anti-nausea meds? What what are you giving giving me for that? Um, Would would be useful to know. And then you know you can ask, hey, can I have something up front to help with my anxiety? I'm nervous to go going back. Can I have something? If you are nervous about having surgery, you should insist on having like a benzodiazepine up front. There's many reasons why I am very eager to give someone that um, before going back to surgery. I don't give it to everybody across the board. If they don't need it, then I don't want to give it. <clears throat> but if someone is visibly nervous, I can tell they're nervous. I ask them if they want it. Or if they ask for it, I, I give it to them right away. The reason is, for one thing, yes, I want you to have a good experience. I want you to have as good a day as possible in a scary environment that you may have never, you know, been to before. But I also, people have chronic health conditions. If someone is getting a surgery, the, the chances that they're going to have another surgery sometime in their life is pretty good. And if they have a bad experience and they're so terrified, they may not want to come back for a surgery that they may need. They may put off necessary interventions for their health in the future because they had such an awful experience. Because anesthesia is scary for people, it's scary. So I wanna make it as as a pleasant uh, environment as possible, not just so you think I did a good job, um, which is important, you need to have confidence in your staff taking care of you, but so that you you don't have dread anxiety and PTSD from the experience so that you will come back uh if you are someone that needs to you know have anesthesia again anyway there's a, there's many things you can ask you know your anesthesiologist ask them whatever you want ask about post-operative cognitive decline if you're a little older if you're in your 60s 70s be like you know do you think i'm going to have delirium at the, at this age range uh you know oh if you're a, a smaller person and be like what kind of size breathing tube are you going to use i maybe i should have something smaller so i don't have such a sore throat you know, ask things that are customizable to you, any concerns you have. I think you should ask anything you are concerned about or worried about. You should ask it. Do not hold back. Ask them. They should easily and with, with, you know, pleasure answer your question. They should not be annoyed. Maybe they might appear to be annoyed. That's, they shouldn't. I don't think it's professional. They should answer any questions you have. I sit there and I take as long as much time as we need to talk about anything that that person needs, even if it delays going back to the surgery. I don't care. Person needs to be confident um, that their their questions have been answered and they need to feel comfortable coming back for surgery because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's not every day that you have surgery. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining this uh, this week. Um, my uh if you have any questions or about anything, email me icudrecmo at gmail.com. I'm on TikTok. ICU Doctor is my handle. I'm also on Instagram. ICU Doctor TikTok is that message me. I'm, I'm at this point, I'm not able to answer. If you email me, I will very likely see your email and read it. Um, if you message me on Instagram and TikTok, it's, I can't keep up with, with all the, I I would love to have the time to message everybody back that messages me. But if you message me on there, uh, I probably it's chances aren't very as good that I'll be able to respond to you. If you email me, I will almost guarantee to see your email and respond to it. Um, so yeah.